Hi everyone, this is Michael for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Mark Moritz, a professor of anthropology at The Ohio State University. We spoke about Mark's work on open property governance arrangements and pastoralist systems around the world, and in particular in Cameroon, where Mark has conducted extensive fieldwork. Mark described his interpretation of open property regimes as an adaptation to resource scarcity and variability in these semi-arid systems. This is a unique type of property regime that is less about imposing constraints than it is about ensuring resource access, enabling the well-known adaptive mobility of many pastoralist resource users. Finally, we talked about how Mark's work fits with common narratives about property rights and the roles they play with respect to environmental sustainability and livelihood maintenance. Yeah, Mark, I'm super excited to talk to you. I I feel like I've heard about your work um, several times when I was talking to people about property rights. And this is something that, you know, everyone in the commons field thinks about or maybe should think about. It's, you know, we all know like these typologies and we throw them around and you can throw a rock at the commons journal and probably find a half a dozen articles that talk about property rights. It's a, it's a big deal for a lot of us. And I've been interested recently in trying to unpack this idea that property rights can be adaptive. I think there, there are different discourses about property rights. Uh, one of them, I think, is that they different types of regimes are more appropriate for different circumstances. And this is, you know, partly how I understand your work. Although, I, you know, a lot of the reasons why I want to talk to you is because otherwise your work actually departs a lot from the orthodoxy in interesting ways. But there is this underlying idea that different property regimes. And so for the listeners who probably all know about this, right, there's this four types of property regimes, which basically point to who owns something. And that is public property, which is the state in quotation marks, which could be impact. There's private property, which itself I find deeply ambiguous, sometimes referring to the market. Sometimes it kind of evokes this idea of individuals, but often it really means like corporate property. Then there's common property, which is kind of a collective ownership by communities, by groups, which I've come to think of as a kind of usufruct rights where the community owns it, but individuals kind of have these usufruct rights to kind of go in and do stuff with what's commonly owned. And then there's this open, open property or open access, which is maybe you would say it like this, but it's, it's dismissed as it's not really considered to be a property regime. Right, it's the absence of a property regime. And it's closely related to the theory of the tragedy of the commons. My own understanding, Mark, the way I've made sense for it myself, because you know, it's these concepts, they're interesting. They're so common. I hate to use that word there, but they're so ubiquitous that we all use them, but I think we all end up using them in slightly different ways. And so each person ends up kind of making sense of these very dominant terms. And so for me, there's a strong relationship between the tragedy of the commons and open access rights, right? The tragedy of the commons, and I even saw this in some of your work where you're saying, look, the archetypal example of the tragedy of the commons from Hardin um, and Ostrom uses it based on Hardin and some of her examples is of a pasture that's open to all. It's, so it's 
pastoralism is seen as potentially this archetype of the failed open access property regime. So not seeing open access as being at all adaptive. And, you know, I'll tell you, that's how I use it in my own work for me. Um, and this is not something I'm, I'm married to. One of the issues I also want to talk to you about is the inevitable failings of these very broad typologies. Like once you, one of the things I feel like I saw in your work, Mark, when I was looking at it is, well, yeah, when you go to the field, things are really complicated. It's not just these very chunky categories. You have to really unpack what you mean by one of these categories. And once you try to say, okay, this belongs into this category of open access or common, it's actually surprising. The concepts themselves can be surprisingly slippery. And it can be surprisingly difficult to say that something belongs to one category or another. That's a feeling I had when I was looking at some of your work. So I wanted to kind of, you know, push all that out to frame our discussion for the listeners, because this is where I'm hoping we spend a lot of our time, because I think this is where I and the listeners can really learn something from you. Um, so we have these property regimes. That's different from this idea of bundles of rights, right? Because what it means to own something can be different. And I don't see that as squarely in your work, but it does seem it, it is in there. You are dealing with like, who can do what exactly? Like, what does it mean to own something? What are the can you access it? Can you graze it? What are you actually doing with the land? So that all said, Mark, I'd love to actually have to start the conversation with a question to you about how you kind of got to this place. You're from the Netherlands, you're in the US. And my understanding is from your work, you've looked at lots of different pastoral systems, but it seems to be what you're, the place that you've been the most is Cameroon. That's, that's correct. And so I okay. um, grew up in the Netherlands, went to university in the Netherlands, um, did my undergrad there. And um, after that, I went to the US. And so as an undergrad in anthropology, um, you were trained, we were expected to be, tra we were trained in ethnography. And so we had a, a, a training, a testing phase in um, uh, where we went, would go to the east of the Netherlands uh, to do field work. And then one of the requirements was that you would go abroad and uh, go outside of the Netherlands um, and do field work. And I got the opportunity to work um, to work in Cameroon. And this was organized through the, the Center for Environmental Studies in the Leiden University. And I was working with a Cameroonian PhD student. I was doing a little part of a research project uh, in Cameroon as an undergrad, uh, basically studying local um, local indigenous, or indigenous knowledge systems and basically how pastoralists um, see the pastures, what kind of different pastures there are, what do they think about overgrazing and degradation. And you mentioned uh, in your introduction that uh, pastoralists have a bad rap because of Hardin's example of shepherds keeping too many sheep on the commons. And it's not just Hardin, and so pastoralists have a bad rap almost uh, everywhere whether it's in the Middle East or in Central Asia. Um, and pastoralists are often uh, uh, associated with overgrazing and desertification and, rain, uh, um, and rangeland degradation. And so I was really keen on getting their perspective uh, on the topic. Um, so one of the things uh, that happened there is uh, uh, I got to meet my uh, a Peace Corps volunteer who is now my wife. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I went back to Cameroon 
and I have uh, maintained a long uh, research relationship with uh, Cameroon. Um, so that's a good reason to go back. Yep. So it has a special place in my heart. Um, and so can you, that, go, yeah, ahead. go ahead. Well, I just um, can you paint a picture of what your initial experiences were like there? Like what? Because you you know one of the concepts I want to talk to you about, in addition to property rights, is this idea of place attachment. Because I know that forms a part of the story for you. Um, what about uh, the country and the places you've been? How do you feel attached to? I'm, I'm trying to kind of get a, an image of what your life is like there and how you engage with folks. And kind of in addition to wanting to um, go, you know, see your wife some more. It's what what drew you to this space? Because I feel like in a lot of for a lot of us there is a strong place attachment. Like it's when I think about my initial work in rural New Mexico, I, I, it wasn't just intellectual. It was, a, it was, it was multidimensional, the, the relationship I built with the place. So I'd love to just hear a bit more about that as well, if you can. Okay. So I'm not a typical anthropologist. Uh, okay. So it's, it, in many ways, and I'm also not a typical ethnographer in many ways. And so I've been going back to the far north region of Cameroon uh, for a long time. And so I started in, what is it, 1993? Um, I haven't been for a couple of years now because of Boko Haram and insecurity issues, but I've been going back and forth for a long time. And so I feel like I have an attachment to the general place, but within um, the far north region of Cameroon, I've always basically been hopping from one community to another community. And so the first time I was there, I did a comparative study of three different villages. When I went back the second time, I basically did a census of all the mobile past list in the Logone floodplain, which is in the far north region of Cameroon. For my dissertation research, I also did a comparative study of one peri-urban community and an agro-pastoral community and a mobile community. And so I've always, uh, I don't have any, I have multiple connections to multiple people uh, in um, the far north region, uh, but not one particular place. Um, mm. Has it been hard to not go back for the last several years? Uh, I'm not a typical anthropologist, or no. Okay, interesting. Um, so I enjoy it when I'm there, and it's great to see people. But um, part of it is I still have, I'm still behind with work, and so I don't mm -hmm. get this urge that every summer I have to go because I'm a researcher and I have to go to the field. Um, I've, I've plenty of work, um, but I'm looking forward at some point to do more uh, ethnographic research. Okay. So yeah, it sounds like when you say you're not a typical anthropologist, what you have in mind when you say typical anthropologist is someone who does a lot of deep ethnography for long periods of time. At least that's one aspect of it. I mean, that's certainly a stereotype of say cultural anthropology. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, very so, immersive. So I have colleagues that go back every year, every summer. And so, so just to exaggerate the typical anthropologists, they, they teach uh, over the, over the course of the year, and then in the summer, they go to the field and they go every summer. And now actually most of my work is reading the work of others and synthesizing uh, research of, that other people have done, as well as use, using agent-based modeling and kind of create artificial worlds where we do experiments and see what happens if uh, conditions change or whether, um, yeah, we can do experiments in agent-based modeling. Okay. Yeah, that's also something that's really come um, become really big in the commons field through Marco Jensen. And I have some several colleagues of mine that do a lot of that. 
I once took a net logo like week long course, and I have to say it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, we, we use net logo, and we're having lots of fun too. Um, yeah, and so in the in the papers that I, I read of yours, Mark, I, I saw this. There's this. Um, you're looking not just at your own work, but you are looking at these different systems. Um, how do you say the one? How do you pronounce the one? And it, it was in Afghanistan, the Pushtun, Pashtun. 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 That was really interesting in particular to me. And that was, I, I was, it was a nice strength of that paper that you sent was that it was comparative. So I'd love to, so I've been interested recently in the idea that common property can be adaptive. And I feel like in some ways, the, the way I've been thinking about common property is, is overlaps a bit with how you think about open property or open access in that for me, common property is partly relevant because it represents um, less formality. And I think that's a, the idea of formality versus informality is a really important here. The idea that more informal arrangements allow for more ad hoc adjustments to changing the circumstance and uncertainty. I've seen that in the common property discourse that if you're facing a lot of uncertainty, it makes more sense to not own things privately because maybe my plot of land doesn't uh, do so well this year. So if I'm working with the whole community, we can work together to avail ourselves of more resources. Um, I feel like most people who talk about the adaptive advantages of common property couldn't actually say much more than that. We kind of know that general narrative. So I'd love to hear from you, you know, what you think open property is and how it relates to these other forms of property and how you think it relates to the dominant discourse about what open property is, the, what, how I think about it, for example. Like, how is it, how do you think about it and how is it different from what I assume it to be? So I have to start with the, 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 the four main types, the conceptual framework. And so I think in a number of my papers, I make the argument that these conceptual framework and these categories shape the way we see the world. And so I experienced it myself um, when I went to Cameroon and started studying pastoralists, not even, uh, I was not studying common pool resource management or common pool management. Um, but that framework, the Ostrom framework was in my head. And I, uh, so when I lay, um, at some point a couple of years ago, I went back to my field notes uh, from my early years in Cameroon and I, how I described access to common pool resources. I described it as open access, but basically I didn't recognize that it was different from what the theoretical, theoretical model predicts. And so I was in a situation where I describe a reality that is not described in, in theoretical models. And so the reason I came up with the open property uh, regime um, is because I want to fit in with this existing four uh, uh, categories. Uh, but I want to make the argument that there's another form of uh, property regime that is not open access where there's no where it's free for all and there's um or it is free for all but it's not because of a lack of rights but it's because there is a right that everybody has a right to access to these common pool resources um so that's one the other thing is um and this is I started with studying pastoralists, and so I'm going to make the argument for uh, open property regimes using the case of the pastoralists. But in the PNES paper that you've read as well, we 
We also looked at other cases, so horticultural systems, foragers, as well as uh, marine fisheries. But for past list, one of the concerns is uh, access to resources. And these resources uh, vary in space and time. And so they're actually characterized, the grazing resources are characterized by high variability in spatial, in high variability in the spatial temporal distribution. And so basically it means that you never know uh, where the rain will fall and when the rain will fall. And where the rain falls will be is where the grass will be. And so this means that pastlist are mobile. They go with their livestock to where their resources are. And it's not that it's totally random and chaotic. Uh, there's some seasonal patterning to it, uh, but it's not entirely predictable either. And so this means for pastlist to be stuck or to be attached to a particular piece of land or own a particular piece of land doesn't make any sense. And so for them, it's all about flexibility and mobility to go where those resources are. And it's not just for individual pastoralists, it's for all pastoralists. And so that's, that's the right, um, that's the, the right that uh, is critical in an open property regime. Because to deny people the right to access, or free, to deny people the right to free access to resources, basically denies them the right to grass and denies them the, the right to life. Um, and so in one of my papers, I argue that basically the way pastoralists see the world or see common pool resources, it is, they see it as a public good. It's like clean air that everybody has a right to that nobody can own. Of course, for scholars of the commons, when they see grass, they say it's a common pool resource because that's how we think about it as scholars. So that distinction, I mean, it's interesting, Mark. So the distinction between the common pool resource and a public good is really about exhaustibility or, or subtractability. And it, it, it does seem like a part of the story that you're talking about here also has to do with how much environmental pressure is being placed on the resource system. Yeah, and, that, and that's a good point too. And so there's some, something fundamentally different between sedentary folk and nomadic folk. And I'm kind of exaggerating, but um, I'm exaggerating to make the point clear. Um, so the past list that I worked with in Cameroon, many of them originally came from Nigeria. Many of their kin and friends went off to Chad, the Central African Republic, some even to the Congo. And so what they do is they go where the resources are. And so if there's resource scarcity, they will go to the places where it's better. Actually, they will go to the places where it's better, um, even before there's scarcity. And so for past lists, uh, there are no boundaries and there is no scarcity because there's always some place elsewhere where there's resources. Maybe not to be the best. Um, and sometimes they cannot go to places because of insecurity. Um, but because of their mobility and because of their flexibility, the resources are basically unlimited. Of course, for sedentary folks, that makes no sense because you say, this is the village. These are the village boundaries. And these are the limited resources. Or you say, this is my nation and these are the boundaries and these are the resources. And of course, the past list that I work with, but it's also in other parts of the world, past list cross national boundaries. They go from one area to another area. And so their perception, their idea, their idea of resources is very different. Mm. Yeah, there was some language you used that I think I just don't have the background to fully understand, Mark, when you talk about, this was in the IJC piece, um, 
this idea that these systems are in disequilibrium relating to this idea that they're, you know, the, the, the vegetation is not being driven. The, the term you use is there's a weak coupling between the herbivores and the vegetation and what it's, it's more driven by the, what's the term you use the root. Oh, I wish I could find it now, the root bank. And so it's this idea that biophysical drivers are more what's, what's um, causing abundance or depriving us of it. Is, is there extra work this idea of disequilibrium does for us in trying to understand this? Because I've, I've struggled in my own work with the idea of equilibrium a lot. Like people use it, but I, I often find I don't fully understand like what someone means when they talk about equilibrium. And so I was interested in your use of the term that you're saying that, look, these systems are actually not in equilibrium. Like what's the significance of that for you and how does it relate to these arguments? Uh, a um, couple of decades ago, uh, there were a number of great papers that looked at rangeland systems and uh, particularly in uh, with the Turkana in East Africa. And what they, so again, the concern is that in pastoral systems, livestock populations grow exponentially and then they will overgraze the range. And so what they found in this long-term study of the Turkana ecosystem was that droughts happen at such a regular, um, uh, what regular pace um, that livestock populations never reach um, uh, carrying capacity. And so when, when there's a drought, a lot of the livestock will die then the pastoralists have to start over again. And so to a certain extent, it's the, 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 the variability and uh, unpredictability of rainfall that keeps livestock populations in check. And so there is no concern. And so that's why what pastoralists do and what's very adaptive is they try to maximize their herd size because they know a couple of years from now, there may be a drought. And if I lose 30% of my animals, I'll be better off if I start off with 100 animals rather right. than 50 animals. Okay. So it's not the grazing that drives the ecological conditions, but it's the rainfall that drives the ecological conditions. Okay. I am reminded of the work by Alan Savory, who argues, you know, he has this, this line, like cows can save the world, that there's also this idea that a lot of grasslands are actually adapted to the disturbance of herbivory. And so it's not this idea, and it's similar to the arguments about like fire, right? We've suppressed fire a lot in the Western US and now we've got these huge fuel loads. And really what we're dealing with is a disturbance adapted system that has become vulnerable because we're over controlling it in a way. As, and so that's a, um, that's a good point. And so one of the most disastrous thing to manage pastoral systems is to put people in place and to settle them and say, you cannot move and this is where you stay for a whole year. And so that's why in many cases you don't see privatization or common property regimes in pastoral systems because it constrains people to a particular place. Um, and then there's a greater risk of overgrazing. And so intensive grazing is not bad, but it needs to be short and then you have to move on to another place. Right. Um, that's so, what mobile pastoralists do. Okay. So Mark, I think, um, for a lot of people where they're where they potentially get hung up with your argument is um, based on this assumption that when someone talks about, and I can't tell actually whether when you talk about open property, it's the exact same thing as open access. It's not the same thing, right? You're talking about open property as kind of a fourth category and, right. and fifth category. You're right. 
Um, Cause it's not what you're saying. You're, you're not saying that in this open system, anyone can do anything. Exactly. Cause and, and it's confusing, right? Cause in some ways we're saying, well, there aren't restrictions the way we're used to thinking about them. The emphasis is more on guaranteeing access as opposed to restricting it. So we're kind of flipping the script a bit here. But then again, when I look at the, um, the Pashtun case in Afghanistan, as you describe it, there's, it's clear that there are rights, mm -hmm. you know, and a distinction I also think we need to make, which you make is between is within group versus between group, right? Within pastoralist communities and between them and other people. But my understanding is that in this case in Western Afghanistan, if someone comes to an area, there is this, you know, one of the universal principles that every human arguably has for property rights is first in time, first in right, right? If you were there first, no one else has a right to displace you. You know, in my own mind, that's partly how I've made sense of, right? Like where do indigenous rights come from? How, do, how are those validated? I think they're validated in part by this, I think a universal principle that we have, even though, you know, the whole process of colonialism clearly didn't follow that, but we all kind of know this. So there is, there are rights here. Yeah, so, right. And so the distinction that I make between open access and open property is, is a, and for me, the, the distinction is not, I really make that distinction for other scholars of the commons. And so uh, Ostrom and many others say open access means that there's no rules. Everything goes there right. and, and it will be disaster. Um, and I say, no, in these pastoral systems that I've studied, um, both ethnographically and in the literature, people have uh, free uh, and open access to these resources. But it's not because there's no rights, it's because there's a shared understanding that everybody has a right and nobody can be excluded. And uh, I think you describe it right. I flipped the script. And I also do that with the Pashtun case. And so, um, before I figured out that there was such a thing as open property regimes, I probably would have described it as a common pool, as a commons, uh, because mm -hmm. there are rules and they regulate uh, access. But if you look, if you look on the long term and what happens over the long term, and what actually happens in the reality, it's very flexible. And so, who's a host now is not a host next year. And so, if you look over decades or longer, basically it's open access. And so. It's the, there's a cup. It's and again, it's a way of looking at the world, and so it's the conceptual framework. But also, what what time frame are you looking at? And so that's really interesting. If you only look at uh, one year or two years, then it seems like the boundaries are clear and there's there's little flexibility. But if you look over ten years or twenty years, then basically you see it's an open property regime. Uh, it's, people are not fixed in place. They may be fixed in place for a couple of years, but then there's a turnover of the population. Yeah, no, I, I, I actually hadn't appreciated that when I was reading your work that really like, because I, I, I remember a paragraph where you say, look, some people might see this as a common property regime. Some people see, might see it as private. And then you more or less say, hear me out about like why I think this is open. And so it's really, yeah, because if you went to the, if someone just visited the system, it would look like th these people are on this plot of land and right now they don't want anyone else using it, which, of, you know, which makes sense. You, if someone else, you can't actually, and this is the funny thing about like common property too, is okay. A community owns it, but use is individual. Like 
I, you know, if I'm using something, you can't physically occupy that same space. So even when there's these more open regimes, there is some congestibility. There is some kind of, if I'm using something, you can't actually take that fish. You can't actually graze your cows on that land while I'm doing it. But if we look at the longer term, that's where the, the actual picture of the property regime comes into place. Because in, if I went back in two years, it's someone else there or even yeah, like would, a couple of months. Okay. I would, I would push it a little. Uh, so that's the case of the Pashtun. And so indeed, if you look at the long term, the, 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 it's very open. Where I work in Cameroon, it's open access in the Lagoon floodplain. I really focus on a small part. And so I, I put analytical boundaries and that's, and that's, I studied what happened in that particular uh, uh, floodplain. But what you see is that people go back and you mentioned attachment to place. And so what you see is that people go back to the same places. And so when you look at Google Earth, um, or when I look at Google Earth, I can see those field sites, those campsites where people camp. And so since people camp there, year after year after year after year, uh, they, they become bare spots. And if I were a conventional researcher, I would say, oh, it's degraded because of the, 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 the cattle. Um, but now that I've worked with pastures, now I think, oh, that's a perfect campsite. There's no grass and no snakes and it's easy to clean. Um, but people go back to those same places over and over, but they don't own those places and they don't, cannot exclude others. And so when other people show up and put their camp next, uh, next to them, and basically their cattle will graze the same uh, uh, pastures, the only option is, um, that's what you call it, either to move or just to uh, accept it as is. Uh, that's the only option. They cannot uh, deny people the right to camp there. And this was, and so I've observed that uh, in, in Cameroon in normal conditions. And a couple of years together with my colleague, Mwazam um, Amadou, we studied when ha what happened when pastoralists from Nigeria who were fleeing uh, Boko Haram moved in a Logone floodplain with thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of cattle. What happened then? And they too were not excluded. They were not chased away. And the only option that uh, Cam the resident Cameroonian pastoralist had was to move elsewhere or basically deal with it. I mean, it was not ideal, but the idea that you cannot deny people the right to live and to keep their animals alive, that was more important than saying, this is mine, you cannot have it. Yeah. So another part of this story, Mark, is also relates to the idea of, so I mentioned this adapt, adaptationist um, perspective that I've been interested in applying to that to property rights. And it does feel like that's, my impression is that you're, you are applying a kind of adaptationist uh, perspective here as well. And so I, and I think you, we, there's also this idea of local knowledge. I've been reading more of Fikrit Berkey's work recently on traditional ecological knowledge. And he has this great distinction between local knowledge and, and TEK where he says, local knowledge is kind of what it sounds like. It's that you, 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 you know, you have a knowledge of local places and facts and patterns and traditional ecological knowledge is adaptive. It's the result of cultural evolution, historical process of trial and error. That's not necessarily led to some kind of optimal outcome, but it's led to a fit between local institutions and what's happening. And I feel like I'm, I do feel like I'm hearing that from you, this, this idea that 
over time, these institutions that you're seeing are an adaptation that fits well with the particularly biophysical circumstances that you're describing. Is that right? Do you, do you also see, view this as adaptive and do you use the language of kind of traditional ecological knowledge as well? Does that help you tell your story? Uh, no, but you're right. Uh, okay. I use that framework. <laughs> I, I, I do not use that terminology, um, but I use that framework. And let me explain uh, how and why. Um, so basically, if I, if I were to design a, a pastoral system from scratch, um, I would start with open property uh, because it's the easiest. There's no collective action. All the coordination happens from the bottom up. And so it's really a self-organizing system in the sense of a complex, complex system. And so that's, and so I argued earlier that because of the spatial temporal variability in resources, it makes sense to be flexible and that flexibility and that mobility is an adaptation. And for that flexibility and mobility to work, you need an open property regime. And so in that sense, it's an adaptation to the biophysical conditions. So now that the second part is, of course, this is just one case study. And of course, it's a large case study in the Chad Basin, but there's a pastoralists all over the world, um, not just in Africa, um, but basically in every continent except Antarctica. And there's a lot of variation. And so some have uh, something that resembles more a common property regime. Some have something that's uh, have a private property regime. Others have a state property regime. And so now together with colleagues, we're trying to make sense of this variation, explain that variation. And part of that is, uh, yeah, so we see it as an adaptation um, or a response to resource scarcity or the, the, the unpredictability of resources. Um, but this is relatively complex because it's not just the, the biophysical uh, world, but it's also whether what the state does or whether you're living in a desert with other pastoralists or whether you're living next to farmers. Um, but this has been a, an exciting, but also a very challenging project. As you're making these inferences, Mark, and as you explore these hypotheses, are you at all worried about, I think, what I would call kind of naive adaptationism? assuming that because something is here and it's been around there for a while, it must be adaptive versus a lot of other reasons why something might persist? No, because I never used the word adaptive because it's so fraught. Okay. Uh, so that, so, in it, so, so you, we just, explain, you just don't use the word and then, okay. No, so we explain the variation. And so one of the things we do is look at cases now, mm -hmm. also looking how cases have changed. Um, and so when you look at the, the, the recent History in East Africa, you see how, uh, for example, Maasai pastoralists went for different kinds of property regimes. Um, and it's not the question. In explaining that variation, one of the things we do is um, take a very econo basic economic uh, uh, um, perspective. And so in what cases does it pay off to have exclusive control over resources? And in what cases doesn't it pay off? So mm -hmm. one of the <coughs> cases that we are looking at is, um, it's been studied, I think, many years ago. Um, let's see if I can find it right now. Uh, but it was by Lloyd Mendes in Morocco. And he has a really nice study about um, uh, agropastalists in the mountains. And they have four kinds of uh, um, grazing resources. And each of those four grazing resources has a different property regime. 
And so we're not only looking at explaining the variation across uh, pastoral systems, but also the variation within pastoral systems. So it depends on whether, depends on a number of factors, and but basically it comes down to the cost and benefits of having exclusive control over these resources, whether it's worth it or not to invest in private property rights or common property rights, or invest in proper open property rights. Hmm. So you mentioned that there's variation in the property regimes being applied here. And you mentioned the state, you mentioned state property. And that, that's another question I wanted to ask you is this, the relationship between these pastoral systems and other groups. And there's two parts to that question. One is in your work, you met, so you mentioned that there's, there's not many or almost any formal boundaries between groups and between parts of a resource. And that's the whole idea. But then you do say at some point that boundaries between pastoral pastoralists as a group and pastoral use and say more sedentary use, that boundary is important. So in some in some place, in some ways, like the absence of boundaries is the central part of your story. But then if, again, if this is about scale, if at the larger scale, boundaries suddenly become very important. Yeah, not at the larger scale, it's really at the local scale. Okay. For example, in Cameroon, where I work, it's one of the most densely populated countries or parts of the country. Um, and so if you would zoom in again from Google Earth, you would see lots of villages with, um, um, uh, with, with fields. And, you have, and then you find also some uh, bush and pastures where pastoralists graze. And so they live, pastoralists live side by side with, um, with farmers and with fishers. And of course, farmers have a very different different idea about property rights um, because they, they 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 grow crops on their fields than pastoralists. Um, and so, the pastoralist logic of saying everybody has a right to grass because it's a right to life to keep your animals alive, the farmers don't care about that. Uh, they care about their crops. And so, it's two different worlds, two different cultural logics, two different property regimes. Um, so they live side by side. And of course, most governments are sedentary, and I'm exaggerating. And so they think like a state, they think like a sedentary uh, farmer. And so in general, they, um, they protect the rights of farmers and they don't understand the pastoral system of open property. And that's kind of exaggerating because the interesting thing that in the area where I work in the Chad Basin, the governments of Niger, Nigeria, Chad, and Cameroon have an agreement that allows pastoralists to move across borders freely. And there is also in law says that all the public lands uh, that can be used freely by pastoralists. So it's not that they're totally ignorant about how pastoralists use uh, resources, um, but in generally, in general, they think of pastoralists as backward and farming as more modern. Yeah, I mean, so you said the words thinking like a state, and one of my Bibles for the last 10 years has been James Scott's seeing like a state. And it sounds like there's some similarities in some of the stuff you're saying. And he talks about forced sedentarization, forced state-led sedentarization as being something that's really inimical to these types of systems. And is that, does that fit with your experience and with the research that you've done? Is that kind of narrative? Yeah, so one of the reasons I want to join this podcast is uh, I'm, a, I'm trying to um, make an argument for seeing like a pastoralist 
And my colleagues who study pastoral systems are doing the same thing. And so um, our tendency as scholars, and of course I'm exaggerating, is to see it more, see more like a state. We want to make things legible. Um, mm-hmm. And um, in that way, we're not very different from the state, except we have less power uh, and, and we cannot force people to settle. Um, but pastoralists, they have a particular view. And so their view is very different. And so I've emphasized their their mobility and their flexibility. They're not bound by national boundaries. The, the pastoralists that I study in Cameroon, I would not study to label them as groups would not be appropriate. I think I think of them as networks. Um, and so there's and for them, uh, they're not at the margins of the state. And so they're really, they're in the far north of Cameroon. But for them, they are at the center. And the capital of Cameroon is at the periphery. And so I like, I really like the idea of seeing at the state because it also allows me to make an argument for seeing like a pastoralist and saying, pastoralists see the world very differently and they have very different values. And if you really want to understand these pastoralist property regimes, you have to look at the world the way they look at the world and take their concerns in consideration. Yeah, I love that, Mark. And I will say that was very well put. And you did sound like an anthropologist there to me. I am an anthropologist. Yeah, you're just not a typical one. Okay. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not ashamed. I really, I, I, I think on my website, I described myself as an anthropologist studying complex systems. But anthropologists are also a very diverse bunch. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's something we ask a lot of guests about because a lot of them are interested in the social ecological complex system space. But of course, that's not where most of them come from in their own intellectual history. So there's always this sometimes awkward process of of changing your professional identity, um, which has social implications, right? Like, what do you call yourself? I don't, I'm, I feel like I'm like a quarter to a third anthropologist, typical or not. Um, I don't call myself that because I've, I've noticed that people who do call themselves that don't seem to like it when I call myself that. Um, and political scientists and economists just don't work. So I think for, you know, I call myself an environmental social scientist, which I know several people do too, because it's kind of the least defensive. It's like, yeah, I do the environment and I think about social stuff. Like you, you can't, you can't complain too much about that. So yeah, go ahead, Mark, if you were going to. Uh, I was I recognize that idea of professional identity. And at some point that when I was deep into this interdisciplinary research, I started calling my associate, myself a social scientist. But then just I realized, yeah. <laughs> and I realized I'm not just any social scientist. I'm an anthropologist. Yeah. So what got you interested in the whole complex systems, complex adaptive system space? Um, so I, as I started I was, I was developing this project, uh, making sense of open access in the far north region of Cameroon. And I remember I was trying to get funding from NSF, um, from the Cultural Anthropology Program. And I called uh, one of the program directors, Deborah Winslow, and explained her the problem that I'm working on. And so I had this thing that I could not explain. And so open access, but not a tragedy. And the conventional... Uh, um, model of the commons didn't work and she said hey, you should read this book by uh, steve lansing perfect order and i thought okay and of course uh steve lansing book is about uh, rice terraces in bali so it's very different from pastelist in cameroon oh it's one of my favorite um, books 
but uh, it's it's one of my favorite books too. And I got hooked, and I really all of all of all of a sudden everything made sense. And um, I've used that framework to explain why open property regimes work uh, in Cameroon, why it leads to sustainable and equitable uh, outcomes. And um, so yes, that's that's how I got hooked. And since then, I see everything as a complex system. What does that mean for you? Like, how does that how does that change what you actually do? Um, so of course I'm exaggerating and do this the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, but I mentioned that uh, the model of the commons is a conceptual framework and it shapes how you see the world. And so I see the world as systems and I look for interactions and I look for emergent patterns. And so if that means that if I describe um, a problem to someone, I, I'll probably talk about actors or agents. And if I'm really bad, I will call them turtles because that's what they're called in that logo. Um, and so it, complex systems and the, the, the tool of agent-based modeling, uh, NetLogo in particular, also shaped my world. And so if I try to make sense of, of an empirical problem in the world and try to think, so how would I model this to make sense of it and get a better understanding of how these systems work? Okay. So yeah, Mark, we can move to that um, in the final part of the interview, I think, is you know what are you doing next? Like what are the next challenges you want to face? And so you mentioned that you've transitioned a bit from your kind of your own deep field work, your own direct ethnographic work towards comparing other people, what they're doing and what they're finding. You mentioned this project where you're trying to synthesize these different regimes. And then you mentioned this modeling. So to play devil's advocate, if someone comes along and they're kind of interested in the modeling, but they also don't really know how the idea of agent-based modeling fun as it is relates to um, how we think of science and knowledge accumulation. How do we use these models in say the net logo to help us understand what we're actually seeing in the world? Like what do you view the role of the model as being in agent-based models in particular? Uh, probably this sounds strange, but I probably would say it's fairly limited. Mm. Um, and so, so I've used agent-based modeling a lot in a lot of problems, but those problems are relatively small. Um, so in the Cameroon case, we used it to model whether and how fossilists distribute themselves in ideal free distribution. We've used a model to model the demography of a, a family herd. And so it's all relatively small problems. Um, I think <clears throat> for me, the advantage is the combination of ethnographic research and agent-based modeling. And so- um, Like I what Steve Lansing did. Yep. And so in many ways, or he's my academic hero and he's, he's an example. Um, but my models, or the model, that's not my models, it's our models because it's a hard, large team that works uh, on these models and on these projects. Is that they're grounded uh, in, in an ethnographic reality. And I know the context, I know the meaning. And so the, I've, I have confidence that the models are a meaningful representation of the problem that I want to study. And I think for me, that's very important. So it's models are not the, the, the magic tool that will solve everything. Um, so it's the combination of a, a wide range of methods and not just ethnography. Mm. Uh, in that sense, 
I'm I'm fairly um, what's a polite word to say it um, <coughs> so whatever does the job uh, right. it makes sense of the problem uh, I'll use it whether it's spatial analysis modeling ethnographic lit review um, or statistical analysis so I'm not wedged to one particular tool. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned spatial analysis. I was, I was wondering, almost assuming that there's some spatial component to some of the modeling you're doing. Yeah, so in that logo, the, the, all the modeling is in a particular world and mm -hmm. not necessarily for all our models. Uh, but we also used um, GIS to, to see um, where past lists are and where the resources are. And so we validated, we compared the results from our uh, agent-based modeling with our spatial analysis and so we knew that the results that we we're getting into the model were actually results that we also see in uh, in, in real life mm. um so mark what are, uh, uh, you know based on what we've said before or based on something we haven't yet talked about what do you think are the most important steps that you'd like to take what are some challenges in in your research program or for the research communities you're a part of what challenges would you like to help meet if you were going to do something new also or build on something you've already done so that my big task i feel is now um and, and this is an ambitious project i'm, do, I'm doing it mostly with uh, uh roy Benke, a colleague who has been studying past this for a long time and so we're trying doing the synthesis uh, effort, um, looking at the diversity um, of pastoral systems and trying to make sense of it and integrating different theoretical frameworks and uh, different levels of analysis. And that's both very challenging, but also been a lot of fun. Um, so that's, that's the main task. And I'm now at a stage in my career that uh, I don't have to publish a lot. Um, so I'm, I have tenure. Um, and so many of my projects that I describe as slow science, uh, it's together with people I like, uh, working on interesting problems and uh, slowly working on those papers. And, and, and I think I sound like an old fart, but it's been a lot of, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and then the, the other big, and I'm also, well, I think I'll leave it at that. No, it's already like a fantastic answer. I love that. I love that. I think, there's a book that came out and I can never remember the authors, um, but it's called the slow professor. And so when you talk about slow science, that really resonates with me. I read a couple of chapters of that book and really loved it. We, you know, as academics, I feel like we're, we're so ready to be critical of a lot of things we see in society. It's, it's, it's overly productivist, it's industrial and all these things. And yet we can be quite productivist and overly prestige driven and myopic in our own um, criteria for performance, right? Like all the things that James Scott says that states do. And I really liked it that when you say, well, I, you know, we do the same thing, we make things legible and we do the same things with ourselves. Like our incentive structures force us to be legible in certain ways that are not for the public good, I think in the long run. And so I love this idea of slow, slow academics, slow science, I've been writing a book for about a year now, but what I've found that really means is that I have to actually stop writing and like, well, I'm writing, but I have to read a lot. I actually have to like go and read a whole bunch of stuff like, like your stuff. Cause I'm thinking about writing, you know, I'm writing about the commons and common property. And so it's like, Oh, 
Mark wrote these really interesting articles. Let me actually learn from him and see what he has to say. And it's just been so nice to feel like I'm getting smarter again. Like I'm learning again in ways that I don't when I'm on a kind of PDF production treadmill. Uh, so I was just giving a, a guest lecture in an interdisciplinary team science course and talked about successful interdisciplinary teams and asked students, so uh, what are indicators of success? How do you recognize whether a team is successful? And they listed all the things that you can count and all the things that go into NSF annual reports, publications, funding, degrees, uh, workshops, uh, etc. Then I asked about the other things that make teams successful. Uh, and so the things that you cannot really measure. And so I'm used to alliteration. So it was fun. Are people having fun? Are they feeling well? Uh, do they have the freedom to engage in new activities? Are these projects fertile? Do they generate new, um, um, new ideas and new projects? I think there was another F. Um, well, it's always these more diffuse goods that are that don't get measured and therefore don't get managed for. It's that whole like what gets measured is what gets managed for. Yeah, and so, and so, and so the problem is for me, it's very easy to say I'm doing slow science. I'm now a full professor. Uh, I have tenure, but that also means it's my responsibility to do something against this uh, in, increasing demands on junior faculty uh, because it's just insane, uh, and there's there's no point because. We're basically producing lots of papers, uh, but who's going to read those papers? And I explained to the people uh, in the class today, uh, when the, my department reviewed my case, I'm pretty sure nobody read my papers. Uh, they just looked at in what journals did I publish? What's the impact factor of the journal? And how many citations do I have? And then they outsource the reading to the external reviewers. And so basically my and I don't think I'm an exceptional case. I suspect it happens all over the place. Basically, whatever I produced in terms of findings uh, was irrelevant. It was all about these numbers that they could measure. Um, and supposedly that was objective. And so within this academic system here in the US, and I just, it's not just in the US, it's also, I also hear the same thing in colleagues in Europe. There's so much emphasis on productivity, it becomes almost meaningless. Um, so one of the, my concern, yeah, I, it's easy for me to do, say I'm doing slow science, uh, but that's kind of lame if that's it. Well, I think, but I think it's also important there, there, I mean, I think there's two sides to that. Yes. It's good to like recognize one's privilege in describing one's values that, okay, I get to do this, but at the same time, right. It's important for a full professor to say this right? Because that's about norm setting. And yes, you do have to walk the walk. Like if you say these things and then you, you know, abuse the junior faculty in your life with like unreasonable productivity demands, then yeah, that's not great. But like that, that would be the problem. I don't think, I think saying it is an important like first step for sure. No, I think you're absolutely right. It's so it's walking the walk. That's important. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm not an Island. I'm part of the department. I'm part of a larger discipline. Um, and I think the way things are going, it's, it's unsustainable. It's not, it doesn't make any sense. No, it just seems like we have this publication arms race where you just, it's inflation where like, it's because there are so many more papers, each paper that I have doesn't count as much. So I need to produce more papers because they're, the value is being deflated by overproduction. Well, 
Okay, on that happy note. <laughs> okay, we all need to see more like pastoralists. Yeah. So, um, you know, before we conclude, Mark, are there any other topics that you wanted to make sure we cover? Um, notes you notes you took yourself that you want to follow up on before we wrap up. I I, I just want to say I enjoyed uh, talking with you and um, I kind of missed that um, these long conversations with people are in interested in the same questions and same similar problems or really in preparation for this uh, for the interview um, I listened to some of the other podcasts on in comments and I really enjoyed that very much. Uh, I wish that when I cycle home from work that I could listen to podcasts, but I really like not, nothing in my ear. Um, so I really uh, want to thank you for uh, and creating these podcasts and organizing them. That's very kind of you, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, it's been, I've loved it. It's been a, but very artisanal for me, very non-productivist. And, and thank you. Like I've, I've thought about these, these issues for a long time. And I think when you think about a concept for a long time, it can also uh, kind of ossifies in your brain and you stop thinking creatively about it or questioning how you're thinking about it. And so looking at your work, um, I'm not just engaging in gratuitous flattery. It's really been helpful for me to kind of re kind of see the idea of property rights with a beginner's mind again. So thanks for helping me get to that space. Yeah, I'll sign you up as a reviewer for our paper. <laughs> As a critical look. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries on our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.